0: Good day everyone and thank you for joining us for this edition of we'll the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. Today my special guest is Nina Simons and we'll be talking about her work as well as the new book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership. In Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, the second edition, Bioneers co-founder Nina Simons offers inspiration for anyone who aspires to grow into their own unique form of leadership, one replete with resilience and joy. Informed by a plethora of multicultural and indigenous wisdom keepers who are leading the way towards a regenerative regenerative future, uh, this guide takes readers on an inspired journey that is both visionary and practical. It speaks to Shedding self-limiting beliefs, leading from the heart, and discovering beloved communities as they cultivate their own flourishing and liberation. Nina is a social entrepreneur who is passionate about reinventing leadership, restoring the feminine, and co-creating a healthy, peaceful, and equitable world for all. She speaks and teaches internationally at schools, conferences, and festivals and co-facilitates transformative workshops and retreats for women that share practices for regenerative leadership through reclaiming wholeness and relational mindfulness. For more information, you can visit Nina's website, which is www.NinaSimons.com, that's N I N A S I M O N S dot com. Okay, was that Nina, we're live. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Robert. It's good to be with you.
0: Great. Well, I am anxious to hear your your journey, about your journey and in, in diving into your book. Um Nature and you know, leadership, especially women in leadership positions as a really um, important group of topics for me. So let's start with, if you wouldn't mind, share a little bit about your leadership, uh, life path, trajectory, and and how did you cultivate your purpose, leadership, and professional pathway in the world? (laughs)
1: Well, um gosh,
0: I'm sure it's a long story. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, let me see how to do this concisely. Um, <laughs> I grew up in New York City, uh the daughter of two artists, um and learned very early in my childhood that nature was my source of solace. I would go to Central Park when I was really upset or uncentered and found that um, it always soothed me. And uh, I thought I wanted to have a career in theater, but when I discovered how hard it might be to earn a living at the kind of theater that I really wanted to do, um, I I sort of drifted. I, I developed my uh, spiritual vocabulary and I managed restaurants And at some point, I came to visit my mother, who lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And she had always been sort of my negative role model, but (laughs) I came to visit her, and I thought the people who lived here were the luckiest people in the world. And I was ready to leave New York, and I moved to Santa Fe, where four years later I met the man who was to become my life partner and husband and collaborator. Kenny Ocello, and that began me on a journey of discovery, where um, I found myself called into a kind of service and activism and purposeful, mm, purposeful, what, uh, work that I could not have anticipated. When I met him, he was finishing a documentary about the politics of cancer of all things, Mm. and Mm. I didn't know anything about that at the time, but as I spent time with him, I realized he was getting phone calls from people all over the world who had heard about him and knew that he knew something about alternative cancer therapies, and they would call up after having received a diagnosis when they were terrified, and I realized Mm. that what he was doing in terms of Um, creating an educational resource that would really teach people about the plethora of alternative therapies that were out there and the history of medicine uh, was a real service and was really important. So I helped him finish the film, and then at one point, as a filmmaker, he was invited to come and document a very special garden in southern New Mexico. And I went with him, thinking I was going for a weekend in the country, and found myself experiencing the most magnificent biodiversity garden I could ever have imagined. Um, It was just beyond my wildest dreams. And when we got there, the master gardener who'd been cultivating it gave us a tour through the garden, and he introduced us to each plant as we walked through the garden. And he would say its common name and its Latin name. And then he would explain how it was related to all the plants around it. And I began to realize, Robert, that this man knew this garden and these plants better than many people know their own families. And as we walked through the garden, he invited us to taste. And there were dozens of varieties of tomatoes that were warmed by the New Mexico sun and they tasted just heavenly and there were herbs I'd never heard of like lemon licorice mint and chocolate basil and there were sunflowers literally 8 feet tall that felt with heads that were like 15 inches across that felt like they were watching us as we walked through the garden
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: and I realized as I was in that garden, that I imagined perhaps the Garden of Eden might have been like this. And then, uh, and, and I also knew that my senses were just dancing because the colors were exquisite, the smells were amazing, the tastes, the whole thing was just ecstatic. And then that master gardener, whose name was Gabriel Howarth, began to explain to us why what he was doing was so important and how all of the mom-and-pop seed companies across the nation were being gobbled up by multinational corporations. And as they did that, they were losing varieties that had been cultivated for their nutrition and for their flavor and for their hardiness by gardeners all over the world, but they were being lost because That concentration, the monopolization of the seed industry, if you will, was causing biodiversity to be lost. So by the time we walked out of that garden, I felt as if the spirit of the natural world tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're working for me now. And I had (laughs) no idea what that meant, Robert, none. And uh, I didn't have any background in farming or gardening. Um, I had always thought I was going to be an artist. And yet, uh at that time, my soon-to-be husband uh went into a partnership with that master gardener and they co-founded a company called Seeds of Change. And Seeds of Change was created to reintroduce biodiversity into the food system by engaging with an army of backyard gardeners. And I jumped in with both feet because I was completely fascinated and something inside me told me, yes, this is something really important that you want to you serve and make sure thrives. And so um, for several years, I worked at Seeds of Change. I became the president of the company as we grew rapidly. I learned how to write business plans and raise money and and uh, manage a very rapidly growing business. And then uh, Kenny was doing a lot of research on bioremediation and biodiversity. And bioremediation, in case folks don't know, is the science of how you remove toxins from the air and the soil and the water. And what he was finding in his research was that there were amazing people who were actually learning from nature how to heal nature and who had designed innovative systems for uh, ensuring that life on Earth would continue in a healthy way and removing toxins and supporting biodiversity. And one day he was sharing his research with a friend in a hot tub and he, si- and he was going on and on about these amazing people he was learning about And the friend said, why don't you have a conference? And Kenny said, well, I've never been to a conference. It sounds boring. Why would I do that? And the friend said, here's a grant for $10,000. Go have a conference. And Kenny came to me because of my background in theater, and I also had never been to a conference. And so we had the blessing of beginner's mind, and were (laughs) able to invent a gathering from scratch based on what we felt was exciting, engaging, inspiring, and, and and innovative. And so we started a conference in 1990 called Bioneers, which was a name that Kenny coined by putting together biological and pioneers. Again, people learning from nature how to live in harmony with nature. And of course, the original Bioneers, are the indigenous peoples uh, all over the earth because they all knew how to live in concert with natural systems. And I remember sitting there, I I had agreed to help Kenny produce one conference, and I remember sitting there, Robert, with my mouth hanging open, listening to people talk, and thinking, oh my gosh, these are the leaders I want to support with my communication skills. And uh, here we are now 35 years later. We're about to celebrate our 35th anniversary, and Bioneers has become much more than a conference. It's become sort of a media organization, and we produce podcasts and videos and all kinds of great stuff online. and um, And I guess I should add that, Over the course of that 35 years, I grew into my own sense of purpose and calling and my voice, and it took some time, but when I saw the film The Burning Times, which is a 1993 Mm -hmm. film that was made by a Canadian woman filmmaker, it's a little dated. You can find it online and watch it. It's only an hour long. Um, But it tells the story of the three to 500-year period in European history, which had correlatives all over the world, where somewhere between 50,000 and many millions of women, and some men, but mostly women, were persecuted and tried for the supposed crime of being witches. And when Mm. I saw that film, I had many reactions. It was actually 94 or 95 when I saw it, and I thought, oh, my gosh, is this true? This is one of the major events in human history. How can I not have been taught about this in school? And so me on a path of researching to try to understand what had happened and how there was a civilizational shift that I believe it's happened many times over the course of human history, but this one took place over such a long time and in so many different lands that I've come to believe that this is one that is perhaps indelibly imprinted in our DNA. Um, and. The other response that I had when I saw it was that it was the first time I understood something that had always seemed irrational to me, why I had this deep-seated almost cellular level fear of speaking my truth. And when I understood that seven generations of children watched their mothers and sisters and aunties and grandmothers and their healers and their midwives and their death doulas, all the women around them systematically persecuted and tortured and burned, I, I had a different understanding of why we as women have such a deep program to not speak our truth and to be cautious and self-protective. So it also helped me understand that my gender had greatly influenced my sense of what was possible for me. And so mm-hmm. I started really investigating the imbalance between the masculine and the feminine in our culture and programming uh, conversations about that at Bioneers and presentations. Um, and uh, <laughs> let's see. Oh, then I was recognized in a magazine for my leadership of Bioneers. And I didn't like it at all, Robert. I felt like somebody had painted a target on my back. And I didn't, really? I wasn't sure that it was a title that I had earned. And mm. I wasn't sure that it was a title I had ever aspired to. You know, I've always been someone who likes to lead by lifting others up and by being kind of behind mm-hmm. the scenes. And, and so that led me, but I understood from Bioneers, that the earth and the huge shifts we're all experiencing now are asking us all to be leaders, each in our own way. Mm -hmm. And so I had this dichotomy to reconcile between I didn't want to be called a leader, but I knew that we all need to be leaders. So Mm -hmm. what did I do about that? Well, I I looked at scores and scores of transcripts from people who had spoken at Bioneers to identify which ones had inspired me most and then to analyze and assess how those people were reinventing the conventional model of leadership so that instead of being a top-down, hierarchical, you know, win-lose paradigm, might-makes-right kind of Mm -hmm. leadership, they were leading collaboratively. They were leading from the inside out. They were leading because they felt called, and often in a, in a soulful, soulful or spiritual or heartful way. Um, and, and they were leading in a, a context that was relational. They were leading with what I call relational intelligence. And so my first book was called Moonrise. The Power of Women Leading from the Heart. And it really goes through this whole analysis of how we're all reinventing leadership by sharing the stories of an amazing diverse array of leaders, including a few men. And um, and then I started leading, uh, co-leading deep immersion women circles for a week at a time and inviting diverse women leaders to work together um, to strengthen each other's leadership capacity. And what I found when I did that was that in spite of the fact that all the women who came had been selected for their leadership, they all arrived saying they didn't consider themselves leaders. And so I Hmm. discovered that this was an issue for more than me and um, that it felt important to me to redefine and reevaluate what leadership is and does and how it works and to sort of um, invite people into a collective redefinition so that we can recognize that being an artist is leadership and being a, a mother is incredible leadership and being a caregiver is leadership and that it's a much broader definition than we may have inherited.
0: Yes. So, wow. I mean, there,
1: there's more I could say. There's a whole other chapter about multiculturalism, and you know, but but um, that's that's the quickest summary I can think of to offer.
0: <laughs> well, that was great, though. I, I mean, there were just so many components to that story that I um, yeah. I can appreciate. Now, first of all, when when you mentioned about uh, going. Santa Fe, to your mother, and mentioned her being a negative kind of influence, and I chuckled. I, I meant that because I could relate. <laughs> I had one of those mothers who taught me the power of negativity, and it, I think, truly led me to what I'm doing now with the, the show is focusing on positivity and, you know, and, and really getting rid of all of those uh, negative types of beliefs that I grew up with, you know, and that it's, um, you know, it's one of those things you kind of, you know, it's a blessing in disguise when you're going through it. It's like, oh, no. Um But afterwards, it ends up kind of directing one towards a purpose. And um so, in that sense, it's good.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I have to say, Robert, it's one of the things I'm proudest of in my life is that when I moved to Santa Fe to be in the same town as she was in, I made myself a promise that I would find a way to coexist peacefully and lovingly with her. And Mm -hmm. we did a lot of work together. You know, it was pretty arduous. But we did reach that place where even though there are many things about her that I you know, that I used as my negative reference point, which is true Mm. for many of the great women I know as well, i got to say. But also Mm. I came to love her and to appreciate other things about her that have helped me become who I am. So I think it's not an either-or, you know. I think we can be a both-and. I I
0: agree. And and also recognizing that uh, much of the... the beliefs were you know, at the time were, were passed down, you know, like you mentioned from generation to generation, female to female, that, you know, the um it's kind of what they knew and it's what they passed on. Um so, you know, and it uh, until you get to a point where you um an individual can, you know, see um can break the cycle. You know, see what, what is happening to break the cycle and, and, then, you know, until that point, it, it just continues on. Um but once it's broken, and like you said, you know, with your mother, you came to appreciate, you know, then that's, uh, I think that's the, the healing that, that is needed and can occur. Yeah. <laughs> All true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, also, you mentioned that you wanted to be an artist, and then talking about the garden. I mean I, I lived in Albuquerque for for many, not many, a dozen years or so, and I loved, you know, that whole um, environment. Um, Santa Fe is just absolutely beautiful, but I, <laughs> I didn't like the cold winters. But um, But but in Albuquerque, the um, Native American influence, you know, um, was something I enjoyed and went to quite a few ceremonies and that kind of thing. I had my first sweat lodge, the kind of experience, you know. So, I mean, there's some wonderful um, experiences that that area can hold for people.
1: Yeah. No, I feel incredibly
0: blessed and lucky to be living here. Yeah, very much. So, um, when in your book, now first of all you, you talked about, you know, obviously the, the women that came to the conference and many of them, like you, didn't necessarily see themselves as leaders. Um, and, and you said some men. So, can you tell us a little bit about that, um, Gender um, differential when it comes to viewing leadership?
1: You know, I think that it's not an inborn thing, honestly. Okay. I think that we Mm -hmm. all, regardless of what we might call our temporary gender assignments, we all have Mm -hmm. masculine and feminine within us. And, you know, of course, the world's great wisdom traditions. Speak to the balance of the yin and yang, and part of what happened for me when I saw the burning times was the recognition that not only had this horrifying historical event occurred within a gendered framework, but that 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 uh, I think helps create um, a sense of timidity and self-protection and. Uh, fear among women, but also that uh, My research showed me Robert that during the burning times all of the social systems in Europe went through a transformation So for example at the beginning of the burning times the women in Europe had more money and more economic resources than men did and by the end of the burning times there was a transfer of wealth, and the Burning Times actually facilitated that. Um, at the beginning of the Burning Times, women were the medical practitioners, the healthcare care people. They were the midwives and the death doulas. Um, they were the herbalists. And, of course, those who practiced any form of healing arts were among the first to be persecuted and tried and burned. And by the end of the Burning Times, you had to go to medical school to practice medicine, and only men were allowed to attend medical school. Mm. So, you know, there was a shift in uh, the relationship to land and the commons, because at the beginning of the Burning Times, villages basically had common land use, and by the end of the Burning Times, something called the Enclosure Movement had happened and suddenly land was being privatized and fenced off, and there wasn't common land use anymore. And uh, the other one that I thought was is particularly striking is that at the beginning of the Burning Times, um, spirituality was held within the context of a relationship to the earth and to the feminine. Mm-hmm. It was more pagan, if you will. And, of course, mm-hmm. the Burning Times... Involved the subjugation of that that form of spirituality and the elevation of christianity and um, And so in the course of that transition, you know the pagan form of spirituality uh, Believed that you can have a direct experience of the divine. It's called immanence, and organized religion does not hold that to be true. Organized religion says you've got to worship in a church, you've got to have a priest as an intermediary. You know, there are certain conditions Mm -hmm. for how you interface with the divine, and direct experience is not one of them. So at that time, what that really brought up for me, Robert, was the recognition that we are living in a culture that has a gross imbalance between all the human qualities associated with the, quote, feminine and the, quote, Mm -hmm. masculine, or the, you know, the yang and the yin, and that I began to see it as one of the root causes of all of the um, pain and suffering that I saw in the world, as well as the ecological imbalances, And, and I began to see that, You know, it's certainly true in the for-profit sector, in the political and governance sector, and and even in the civil society sector, that the imbalance of the masculine and the feminine in their archetypal forms, not having to do with
0: men and women,
1: but having to do with how we relate to one another and how our organizations function, um, are very heavily patriarchally influenced. So yeah. I, I'm not sure if that answered your question. I think. It oh no! To, it, you tell me. Yeah,
0: it does. It does. <laughs> it does. And, and you know, the one of the things that kind of fascinated me um, about the book and your story is uh, um, like kind of like a reference to stepping away from a, you know, dichotomy of feminine and masculine into one more holistic um, type of, you know, living, really. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, once you can um, stop defining, uh, like, success, you know, in the sense of masculine and feminine, but doing it more holistically, recognizing there are benefits to both types of energy, you know, and marrying the two is really the key, you know. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yes. Well, we're um, about halfway through the show, Nina, so I'm going to take just a quick 90-second break, and then when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit about your book um, and uh, some of the content so that the uh, listeners will get a good idea of what they can gain by reading the book, okay? You bet. Okay. we back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder, we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, www.byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to the more than 1,700 shows we have aired during the past 13 years. Also on the site, are links to the products and services we provide, books, photography products and services, calendars and greeting cards. There is also a link to our account at Fine Art America where you can purchase items such as mugs, prints, pillows and more. Our show is available as a free podcast on multiple platforms such as iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon podcast, and Audible, with icons to each platform on our homepage. We are also available on social media platforms such as Facebook, X, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Threads. Our website, www.byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us today. Again, my special guest is Nina Simons, and we have been talking about her journey, which is fascinating, as well as uh, her book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred A Woman Listens for Leadership. Again, you can find out more about what Nina has to offer by visiting her website which is www.ninasimons.com, and that's N I N A S I M O N S dot com. And then also uh if you're interested in finding out more about the Bioneers um organization, um you can visit that at Bioneers dot org. B I O N E R S dot org. And with that, uh, we're back, Nina. And and if you wouldn't mind, I I can tell by looking at the um, Binary's website that you have an uh, upcoming event. Can you tell us about that?
1: I'd be happy to. Thanks, Robert. We do an annual three-day conference, and it's a remarkable experience. Um, I think, unlike any other conference in the world, actually which still amazes me that there haven't been more copycats. It's coming up March 28th to 30th, and it's in Berkeley, California. And Mm -hmm. um, the particular website for it is conference.bioneers.org. And what you'll find there, if you cruise the schedule of events and speakers, is that it's kind of like a festival. Um, Everybody sits together, in a huge theater in, at the UC Berkeley in the mornings and listens to keynotes and performances. And then in the afternoons, there are about nine or 10 different breakout sessions. And we have people coming this year to speak on breakout sessions who we would have considered keynote speakers any other year. So it's, it's actually a celebration of our 35th anniversary we have a very, very strong and vital indigeneity program that produces its own events as part of the conference. And um, and it's unusual in that, you know, we program our event to address a whole lot of different, uh, disciplines, sectors, ways of thinking, um, aspects of the reinvention of civilization. And so I program a lot of the inner focus material that that includes interactives and experiential workshops. There are panels and conversations and interviews, and it's just uh, it's kind of ecstatic. And there are about a hundred leaders who we assemble each year from all over uh, the country and some from around the world. So check it out, and if you're inspired, at least sign up for the newsletter, but maybe you'll come to the conference, and you'll love it if you
0: do. Absolutely, yeah, and again, that's conference.bioneers.org. And looking at the lineup, I mean, there's a wonderful variety and, and so many indigenous individuals that um, yes. I'm sure it's going to be great. And, and <laughs> your you're sitting in Berkeley couldn't be better for such a topic. That's right. <laughs> Yep. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, you know, your book is broken down into three parts. One is Cultivating Inner Balance. Um, part two is Women's Leadership. And part three is Toward Wholeness. So what I would like to do is talk about just a couple of the topics within each part of the book um, to give um, the listeners an, an idea of just a sample of what the type of uh, information they can read. Um, so before can, I, I that, can I make a uh, suggestion,
1: they, Robert, before sure. we do that? Sure. I, uh-huh. I'd love to share with listeners how this book came into form. Because, Perfect. Because um, mm-hmm. what happens for me is that each year at the conference, I'm invited to give a keynote talk as one of the co-founders. And
0: mm-hmm. as you might
1: imagine, over the course of my coming out of my shell, I found it incredibly intimidating to give a talk among leaders who I look up to like celebrities, you know, and consider Mm -hmm. to be um, far greater than myself in many ways. But so each year I give like a 15, sometimes 20-minute talk. And what I realized over time was that I could put together those talks and edit them for print and that they would describe an arc of my own evolution, and also offer mm-hmm. readers a kind of a chapter snapshot. So that the fact is that each piece in this book, which is only, I mean, you can you can read them quickly, which is nice. Um, and then each piece has a study guide that accompanies it. So what I realized was that I could I could marry together the two parts of my life. One part, which was pioneers, and the other part, which was doing these women's intensives. And over the course of 15 years of doing women's intensives, I learned all these methodologies for, to give good prompts for deepening learning and to give embodied exercises. And so the book is a combination of the talks and, uh, and the, the, the guides for deepening learning. And um, in that way, I think it's really useful for anyone from a women's circle to somebody who's doing coaching, or to you know any other kind of um, book club, book circle kind of environment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I wasn't reading that, but the embodied group practices at the end of each part. You know, that really Mm -hmm. that ability to include practical application. I think is what is so important uh, when, and because when and when reading a book and you absorbing various topics and particularly those that are thought provoking, um, you, for me, I often look at a way that how can I incorporate this into my life, you know, to take advantage of what it is that I just learned, and you know, those practices sounds great that that is what people can do um, is, you know, not only gather information but also make choices and decisions and take actions that can improve their life and, and those of, around as well.
1: Well, and I think, Robert, for me, you know, part of the impetus for doing that was discovering that we learn best what we discover for ourselves. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that's a way of of moving the learning from our heads to our hearts and our bodies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, that was actually <laughs> one of the first ones, the topics I had highlighted. In, in part one, it was cultivating your inner balance, marrying the moon and sun within. Um, and the very first topic under that is shifting guidance from head to heart. And, um, you know, that, to me, that can, for some people, it can be uh, – a challenge, because I don't know if everybody is in touch with their heart as much as their head.
1: <laughs> oh, I would say very, very few people are, and <laughs> and to yeah. be fair, we're all conditioned to lead from our heads, right. and so right. I think what we're seeing in the world today is the product of a culture that has been totally um, mentally centric in terms of our human capacity. And of course there's all kinds of science now proving that the heart is actually far more influential in our behavior than our heads are. And and so, you know, there are, there's an indigenous saying that sometimes the furthest distance that people have to travel is the distance between head and heart. But I think mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: if we can learn to lead from our hearts much more, um, right. we'll be in much better shape.
0: I, I agree completely. And, and another topic from that part that you to talk a little bit more about was the idea of creating relational intelligence. You mentioned this a couple times during the show, but can you explain the idea of relational intelligence?
1: Absolutely. You know. Um what I noticed when I put together the first book Moonrise really all about these the reinvention of leadership was that the leaders that I admire most were not just leaders who assessed a situation or a challenge and determined a strategic plan and then did it they were leaders who took into account what is the ecosystem that they are seeking to influence? And how can they interface with that in a, in a respectful and mutual way? Um, so that one of my favorite examples, there's a, a wonderful um, Oceans activist named Jay Nichols. And Jay Nichols has written a book called Blue Minds that people might be interested in, but at the time, What I was featuring in that book was the story he told about he had been hired to come and help create a way to deter teenage boys from harvesting the eggs of sea turtles on an island Mm -hmm. where, you know, they laid their eggs uh, seasonally, and the teenage boys would go and gather them and sell them, and as a result, the sea turtle population was dying out. So he he took an assessment, teenage boys' reality, and he realized that the best way he could imagine to deter them from this pattern that they had developed over time was to create a soccer tournament that happened at the same time as the turtles were laying their eggs. And so, and now that's relational intelligence, right? Because... He's meeting them at their level of interest with what they care about and giving them an alternative to what to what they had been doing rather than a punitive approach or a power over approach. It was a relationally intelligent approach that said, okay, let's meet people where they are and really understand um, through exercising that intelligence that we all innately have that helps us understand what it's like to stand in another's shoes, and then design to meet that in a in a mutual and respectful way. So that's um, what I mean.
0: That, that was ingenious <laughs> for kid to do that. Right? Um, yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, and and you know because the you know punitive types of approach really don't work. You know, I mean, I think we've seen time again that those kinds of things don't. um, But having an incentive that goes to their primary interest, you know, at the same time of uh, the turtle laying eggs is great. So, okay, well, that's that's very interesting. I'm going to have to take a look into that deeper. Um, Now, Part two of the book is women's leadership, the challenges, the pathways, and the promise. Um, At the the beginning of that part, you have a a topic called at the front line, the global war on women. Um, So, can you tell us? Well, let me
1: describe a little of what each section of the book does.
0: Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is
1: that okay, Robert? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the first one, the first one, is deeply personal. It's really describing my own inner process of awakening to the power of the feminine and living into it as I cultivated myself through a lot of work with a lot of other women. Um, The second section is about how my worldview started to open, and I began to realize that there were systemic inequities throughout the globe that are not just happening here but are happening everywhere. And so I described in there um, a session that I was offering at the UN where I was invited to host a session about the impact of extractive industries on women. And mm-hmm. we on the panel were all from the United States or Turtle Island. Um, but as we gave our presentation, and then women in the room stood up from every nation in the globe and said, this is what's happening in India. The same thing is happening in Portugal. The same thing is happening in Argentina. And suddenly I, you know, it, my awareness of the pandemic of violence against women as being specifically perpetuated by multinational corporations, by extractive industries, and by global capitalism, frankly and how it was influencing and impacting women around the world, which of course, doesn't just impact the women, it impacts everyone. So there mm-hmm. I was giving a combination of some of the global overview of what I had learned with some statistics and some stories, and then it transitions into a section that I called the power of story. And uh, again, that has a lot of examples of people who either at pioneers or other sheroes that I have come to admire over the years um, and the kinds of storytelling that they do and why their activism comes through their storytelling and how it's one of the most effective and underutilized tools, I think, in our desire to make change in the world. And then the third section really opens out to my interests in the last mm, 10 or 12 years, which um, really include what I call full spectrum leadership and racial justice. And so it integrates some talks that were about what I've learned from indigenous mentors and um, awakenings that I had about uh, the culture of racism that exists in this country and the role of white supremacy culture in perpetuating it. And, you know, even though I grew up the daughter of liberal parents and I marched on Washington and I did all kinds of good things and always considered myself on the good side of any equation, what I came Mm -hmm. to understand is that all privilege comes with blinders and that one of Mm -hmm. the most important things we can do is cultivate our own awareness of our own blinders so that we can uh, practice ways to be good allies with people from any color or background or class um, or, or, you know, or uh, orientation. And yeah. so, you know, that's kind of the quick overview. okay
0: um, mm-hmm
1: and and there there are interviews within it, like there's a beautiful conversation that I had with Terry Tempest Williams years ago, and um there are just some beautiful you know beautiful interactive pieces within it as well,
0: yeah, I noticed that that there were several um that were you know you printed the the interviews or the the interaction, the conversation with with certain individuals. So that's great. Now, um, you mentioned allies about, you know, gathering allies and one of the things that I had a little chuckle about was, you know, in in the last part when you were talking about, you know, the spectrum leadership and racial justice, you, and one of the topics is why I'm deepening into indigenous allyship. And my, my words, Jeff did not like the word allyship. <laughs> so, I thought, okay, let's, let's talk about that. So, can you, you know, just kind of mention, you know, when one thinks of an ally, you know, we think of, you know, someone who, you know, you have a common purpose, um, or a common goal, and you work together to achieve. Um, so, it, what would you say, when you talked about the deepening into indigenous allyship, does that mean that you're, you're, you know, really kind of exploring and, and cultivating, you know, with indigenous individuals, a kind of cooperative, Work effort.
1: Well, yes. Um and in some ways it's deeper than that. Um, you know, what I would offer for listeners is I, I realize I should mention that Bioneers has a relatively new program called Bioneers Learning. And we launched it last year because we realized that there was a need for a really good source of online learning that could really help people expand their capacities. And so we have um, three amazing Native women running our Indigeneity program who are offering a course on Bioneers Learning starting in April um, on how to become a good Indigenous ally. The way that they titled it is Becoming a Good Relative. And I think, Mm. you know, so when you – as I, when I began to immerse myself in indigenous culture, which was probably in the early 90s, um, I began to understand that for many native peoples, especially those who are connected with their traditional practices and protocols, they relate to the earth as a living relative, and similarly to the plants and the animals. And, and, um, the water, the elements, they consider them all to be relatives. And so, you know, their practice of being able to be in right relationship with natural systems is more than, um, is more than a sustainability practice. It's, it's a devotional practice. For them, it's, it's both spiritual. It's emotional. You know, it's what I call full-spectrum leadership is leading from the integration of your body, heart, mind, and spirit. And when all four of those centers of our humanity are engaged and are aligned towards a single kind of purpose or a calling, I think we become nearly unstoppable and It's the most joyful form of leadership that I can figure. So how to become a good ally, I would call it now. I have a friend who's just publishing a book called Becoming a Good Relative, and it's a beautiful book. It's about her eight-year journey as a white woman who had ancestors who had slaves and took over land from indigenous people, and how she found her way to healing with some of the descendants, people that her ancestors had abused, and found her way into really deep, aligned relationship as a relative with indigenous peoples. And it was an eight-year yeah. journey, and it's an amazing story.
0: Well, send her my way. <laughs>
1: <just> <laughs> okay, the, uh, I <laughs> will. <the farmer. laughs> Follow up with me after, and I'll, I'll connect you.
0: Okay, great. Well, we, we've run out of time, you know, but, um, now I did notice on your website that you're on social media, you uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, so, or X. <laughs> um, and yep. so I'm going to join you on, on each of those platforms, and, uh, so that we can kind of keep in touch. And I'm really anxious Lovely. to follow your well, journey. Well,
1: it's best to keep in touch with me through email, actually, but I would okay. also ask Listeners a favor, which is that if you do decide to explore my book, and there is an audiobook version of it too, although it doesn't have the guides, um, mm-hmm. but it's wonderful, I think. Um, if you do like it and find it useful, would you write a review on Amazon for me? Because it's very hard to get the word out about a good book now. And so if you do, that would be great.
0: It is, and, and I know I appreciate those kinds of um, reviews as well. They're, they're, they do me a lot, especially when I'm going through and selecting a book. I like to go through and, and read the reviews and just get other people's perspective on, on the information.
1: Can I read a very short piece from my book, Robert, as we close? Sure.
0: sure, sure no, absolutely. thank you.
1: Okay. This is from a piece that I love that actually is what I would call a prose poem, and it's called From Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Into Daybreak. And I'm just going to read a short section because it feels so appropriate for now. How will we grieve for the vividly colored corals bleached white, for the animals brutally hunted, for all those whose habitats have been logged, to make mail order catalogs, phone books, toilet paper and newspapers. The crone wants to shake us all awake, screeching. Don't you get it? This is no time for small talk. This is a time for myth-making. This is a time for epic poetry. This is a time to tell the tales that will become our compass for the times ahead. A time to remember the grace and celebrate the magic that infuses and informs this world. We live on the only planet we know of where the sun and moon appear the same size. The only planet where an eclipse is possible. Doesn't that seem like instructions to you? Wow. That's all. <laughs> I <love it>. you <laughs> You'd have, have to read more, the rest of the poem, but I did want to offer that.
0: Well, yes, thank you. Yeah, it, it's beautiful, great, beautiful imagery. So, um yeah, and, and I concur with the feeling um behind those words.
1: Well, thank you, Robert. It's been a joy to be with
0: you. Thank you. I I agree in the same. So um, I just want to remind everyone that today my special guest has been Nina Simons. We've been talking about her work as well as her book, Nature Culture and the Sacred, Um, A Woman Listens for Leadership. And, again, you can find out more by visiting Nina's website, which is www.ninasimons.com, that's N-I-N-A. S-I-M-O-N-S dot com. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show and I'm tuning in again. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Bite Radio Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. To become a show follower, visit www.blogtalkradio forward slash Radio me. And click on the follow link. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Bite Radio Me. Be sure to visit our website at www.byteradio.me. That's B I. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are
1: gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.